0: DiscerningHearts.com presents Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno. Dr. Reno is the editor at First Things, a journal of religion, culture, and public life. He has also served as a professor of theology at Creighton University. His theological work has been published in many academic journals. Essays and opinion pieces on religion, public life, contemporary culture, and current events have appeared in Commentary and The Washington Post. He's also the author of numerous books, including Fighting the Noonday Devil. This series explores numerous facets of faith and reason in the life of the church and the world. Grounded on the work of giants such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed John Newman, Blessed John Paul II, G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and Stephen Barr, Dr. Reno helps us to open our minds to make the journey to our hearts. Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Professor Reno.
1: Great to be with you.
0: We're talking about Thomas Aquinas on this series, looking at the broader subject of Christian apologetics. I thought in the last session you gave wonderful advice for those who are seeking to grow in their knowledge by pursuing a higher education, whether it's in a university or just trying to uh, reach out and expand what they would like to know more about. And you said as far as going to different universities, don't necessarily look at the name or even the heritage of a particular university, but more so look for those who are the teachers and find teachers that can help you to grow in that knowledge that you're seeking.
1: Yeah, teachers are, they are the embodiment of these traditions of thought. And people are more powerful than books in terms of influencing us as, um, as human beings, and rightly so. Um, not to say that books can't be quite powerful because they're, in a way, they're Enduring this, the Summa is a kind of enduring presence of St. Thomas for us. But I I think one should um, think about that uh, in terms of continuing education, find good teachers. And then also, um, that's true for books too. You can enter into the thought and be instructed and taught if you can focus on some kind of classic figures in the tradition, try to get inside their mind, try to understand how they think about things and not just what they think about things. And then you, then you become an active participant in their vision rather than a passive recipient of their conclusions. Uh, it is very clear that St. Thomas wanted that because the way that he sets up his, uh, the Summa is with this objection response format to socialize us into the process of thinking through and not just socializing us into the answers. I mean, you can't think through everything. And I think it's a, it's a fallacy of kind of modern um, individualism. To think that you should only endorse or affirm what you've thought through, I think that kind of dooms us to very, very impoverished uh, lives, um, because you know you can't reinvent wisdom on your own. But that that said, it's a great blessing to be able to uh, become have it ha- turn a kind of passive knowledge into an active knowledge, to pr- to turn a an obedient faith, rightly obedient faith, into a kind of uh, Uh, active faith. Uh, It makes you a much more powerful witness to other people. And again, not because of this kind of superficial sort of individualism of our own time, but I think people feel like, wow, this person and this kind of faith really stimulates and engages the heart and the mind. People want that. Rightly, they they rightly Mm -hmm. want that. And it is a very powerful witness. And so... Um, I think St. Thomas sets things up. He approaches these questions with that spirit in mind.
0: I think that's quite the gem that you've just given us, not so much just what they thought, but how they thought.
1: Mm -hmm. And you can't do that with the whole tradition. That's kind of absurd. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you find your touchstones. Um, Everybody has them. St. Augustine is a touchstone for me, although not not as much interesting or origin as a touchstone for me. Uh, you know, he was condemned as a heretic, or at least some of his views were condemned as heretical, to be more precise. And and all the more reason, for me at least, to enter into him as a, as a person to guide me towards a certain way, just an incredibly expansive and ambitious way of thinking without being seduced by some of his conclusions. You know, other authors in the tradition are more trustworthy, and, and each individual, each listener has to sort of, I think I would really encourage everyone to try to, if you want to engage in, in your own private kind of, uh, study to, to think who, who are my touchstones and, and to learn more about them. I always think of my own development as working from a, a solid center, outwards, concentric rings, outward, 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 to try to engage things that I don't really understand or I don't, I'm not really sure about. And, uh. That's not so much a substantive idea as I have, my, I have my touchstones. St. Thomas is a touchstone. I said Augustine is a touchstone. John Henry Newman is a touchstone for me. Those are probably my big three uh, when, I, when I think about it as touchstones. Again, not so much that I can remember all their views so much as I, I feel like when I'm off base or when I'm lost uh, in what I'm supposed to think, I want to think like them. And that will help orient me.
0: It's interesting you should say it that way because that's how I feel about Teresa Avila. I always go back to Teresa mm-hmm. Avila, and I just how she thinks, and even you get to to know that person almost so well that they become, if not a spiritual mother or a father, is a response that becomes a part of how you respond.
1: That's a great point, and too, I, I really want to remind listeners that. Academic touchstones, or uh, yeah, they can be dangerous. Where we we need to have existential ones—people who who we trust to help us understand how to make these kind of uh, judgments about how to live our lives. And you know, someone like Saint Teresa is probably a much greater s- resource than John Henry Newman when it comes to that.
0: <laughs> oh. oh, he has his wonderful merits—that's for sure. But. I think it's important especially as we approach this article number 8 with Thomas Aquinas. It poses probably one of the fundamental questions, doesn't it? Do arguments play a role in theology?
1: Yeah, I mean we've kind of been again, he circles back to the same issues always. It's you think of it like a crystal turning the crystal and each facet uh it's the same crystal but each facet kind of gives a different color or different uh shade. We tend to think of, look, what's the relation between faith and reason? We've been kind of grappling with this. I mean, does wisdom involve proof or no? Or is philosophy greater than theology or what? And now we're engaging in a different way, which is, hey, I mean, we think of the intellect. The most powerful tool of the intellect is the ability to construct arguments, to marshal evidence, and to develop inferences. If it's raining, then I'm going to take my umbrella I have my umbrella, therefore it must be raining. It's a kind of classic sort of argument that we Mm -hmm. say. So does theology do that, that kind of intellectual work, or is it a matter of piety, pure and simple? This is the way that he approaches the objections. He says that, look, theology is based on faith. It's not based on proof. Therefore, arguments have no role to play in theology. And the second objection is really quite similar, which is that theology is based on, if it does have proofs, and it's based on premises that are supplied by authority, and that this is not a good way to argue. They're not real arguments. I mean, arguments from a theology aren't authority aren't real arguments. And so therefore, theology does not depend upon or does not have a place for real arguments. And I think I experienced this as a um, professor of theology. I mean, Creighton is a wonderful institution, very supportive of the Catholic mission in many ways. But nonetheless, it's not hard to find a colleagues who are, you know, they're kind of, you know, well, we got theology, you know, whatever that is. And they're very suspicious of theology as an academic discipline because they feel kind of intuitively that, hey, you know, we, we physicists, we political scientists, we classicists or whoever we are, we're in the business of you know, using the intellect. Whereas, you know, Dr. Reno in, in theology, he's doing something else. It's a heart issue, not a head issue kind mm-hmm. of thing. We've been there, too. So this is another way of kind of coming at that. I'm going to precise. Okay, you tell me that what I'm doing as an academic, I tell my, tell my colleagues, you're saying what I, do is, what I do as a professor of theology is really different from what you do. Now, do you use arguments? You go, oh, yeah, it's key. Got to have arguments. And then I want to say, well, hey, that's what I'm teaching my students to do. I'm teaching my students to uh, understand the arguments that are so central to the Christian theological project. And so that's what St. Thomas is going to help us kind of understand how that's possible.
0: And how would he respond to this in that overall response?
1: It's a kind of actually a very complicated <laughs> response of his. He wants us to notice that academic disciplines are kind of complicated structures. I mean, they all involve assumptions. And... In order and then they involve really working within those assumptions to kind of work out the implications of those assumptions, to apply those assumptions, those theories, if you will, to empirical reality in the cases of the natural sciences, to test them and so on and so forth. But he observes that these assumptions are either self-evident or they are presumed. So they're either self-evident or they're presumed. And so the fact that theology cannot prove its assumptions because they're revealed by God is obviously very different from mathematics. that cannot prove its assumptions. You do mathematical proofs and some of the, you have to assume principles for your proofs that are self-evident principles. But a self-evident principle is by definition not a provable principle. And so he what he's doing is he's diffusing the idea that it only counts as an academic discipline if it is based, on, if you can prove all your principles. And when you think about it, I mean, this is actually not that hard for most of my students to grasp because most of my students have a, a sense that, well, everything's based on assumptions and so on and so forth. But then they have this false view that because everything's based on assumptions, there's really no reliable or true science. And what this is based on is a, it's a misunderstanding of, the way that the the way that arguments actually work. And the way arguments work, St. Thomas explains in this response, is that when you get into disagreements with people, you or when you make arguments with people, you can do kind of two things. One you can show that, well well, hey, we all agree about this and hey, and this follows from it. So we, we draw out the implications of it. So we all agree that you know, equality is the most important uh, principle for society. And then I can show to someone, well, hey, if we're committed to equality, then we have to have a certain kind of policy. That racial discrimination is, I mean, Martin Luther King was a kind of great instance of that. He proved to people rhetorically, I mean, it's not like a philosopher, but he kind of drew out the implication of the Declaration of Independence. Right. And he applies it. And, and that kind of, whoa, well, but what do you do when somebody doesn't accept the premise? That equality is a basic goal of society. Well, as St. Thomas points out, then you, all you can do then is refute their objections. So someone says to me, equality is not a fundamental principle of human society. I can't prove to them that it is. I can try to persuade them that it is, but I can't prove to them it is. But what if they turn around and say equality could not be a fundamental principle of society? Well, then I can make an argument to show that their objection is not a sound objection. And so what St. Thomas does, he shows arguments have two roles in theology. When people kind of buy into aspects of theology or aspects of the Christian vision, but only partially. So you you can use arguments with heretics, for instance, to show that if you're an Arian, then you cannot sustain a view of Christ as the sole redeemer of humanity. So certain scriptural passages can't be sustained. So they're inside the game, if you will. But if someone doesn't believe in God at all, I mean, you can't get the argument for the divinity of Christ off the ground. Right. (laughs) But if they say, oh, it's illogical to believe that a finite man living in the first century could possibly be God incarnate. Well, then you step back and say, no, wait a minute. Do you really understand what we mean by God? And do you really understand what it uh, what it means to say something is finite? Isn't it presumptuous of us to say what God can and cannot do? So presumably, it, it's if you the concept of God would would permit God to be able to become finite if God chooses to become finite. Mm-hmm. And it's very presumptuous of us to imagine that we know what God can can and can't do. Well, then the atheist might go, "Oh, huh? Hmm, never thought about that." Right. Uh, and so Saint Thomas points out that while you can't use reason to prove faith, you can certainly use reason to draw out the implications of your faith. And where you can't use reason to to argue someone into faith, you can certainly use reason to two ways. He doesn't speak of this, but I would add, you can show the beauty, the intellectual beauty of faith, which is very attractive, even if it's not the same as a proof. Mm-hmm. And you can also refute or alleviate the person's objections to faith. So... I have students that are very ardent, very passionate about their faith, and they really want people to see the truth of the faith. They get involved in these sort of knockdown, down drag-out arguments with their roommates and stuff, and I, I find myself thinking, oh, I'm not sure that that's really a realistic strategy because it's based on a false view of what reason can and can't do, what arguments can and can't do. Right. Arguments can, can get people who share assumptions to sh- see what the real consequences of their assumptions are. And arguments can also remove false impediments to to faith. So I mean, often you know, the problem of evil, for instance, is a huge problem for people, right. some people, in terms of being able to have faith in in God. And that's a t- that's a very difficult one intellectually for the Christian tradition to handle. I mean, there are many good arguments in that tradition. No sort of final knockdown, problem solved type arguments but ones that are consistent on their own terms and have, do actually make a difference for people. And they go, wow, never thought about that as a possibility. And that smooths the way for them to be attracted to more fully to the beauty of, uh, of uh, the Christian truth.
0: We'll return in just a moment to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Did you know that you can obtain a free app, which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from inside the pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A teaching of St. Paul to his letter to the Romans. Let love... Be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.
1: If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts.
0: We now return to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Can we use this as an example for uh, when we talk about the ability to be able to have reason and how it can be applied in theological discussions, but also it, it can have its access even outside of theology or authority? And I speak more specifically of the Christian understanding of the dignity of every human life that life in itself, there's a dignity, and it deserves to be treated with such dignity. I'm thinking of John Paul when he talks about the social teaching. So from conception all the way to a natural death, that every life has dignity. Now from that, you could reason the things you can and cannot do to life, and how it should or should not be treated. But you basically have a fundamental principle, and then you can reason through a response from that.
1: I mean, one of the uh, when he talks about how theology is the queen of the sciences, he points out that well, theology tells us things that we could not know, but for we don't we couldn't know that we are redeemed in Christ, but for the proclamation that we were redeemed in Christ. But revelation and theology also reinforces things that we can know through our natural use of reason, but that because of our sinfulness and our finitude, we very we, we need reinforcement, and so then. Uh, Intrinsic dignity of the human person is a kind of classic example of that. Uh, it's certainly something that um, is uh, available to uh, to us just by virtue of our own creative powers of reason, which is why other cultures um, and more than Christian cultures have, um, uh, have you know, prohibit murder and, and do things to try to protect human life, the intrinsic dignity of human life. But it's not an accident that Western culture has the most kind of energetic humanistic project and it's the as a sort of uh really a almost hyperactive you know, in a good sort of way anxiety about about torture uh, about human rights mm-hmm. about uh death of innocence in, in in warfare uh about wrongful punishment of criminals all these sorts of things these are it's not just that we have the luxury of uh of powerful, wealthy societies where we can indulge our conscience, so to speak. We shouldn't underestimate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also because of the effect of revelation on Christian culture that draws out and reinforces this, this, this intellectual, uh, this moral commitment. Um, and we shouldn't underestimate that, I think. Um, the way in which uh, Christianity and the church and the formation of the conscience, if you will, of the West has been so strongly influenced by, by revelation, and uh, um, it's it's a it's an important thing to remind the secular humanist of that their humanism owes a great deal to, um, to the to the way in which Christianity has you could think of it as kind of stimulating and nurturing the natural perceptions of, and it's also uh, something that Catholics ought to think of that that they ought to recognize that as the second Vatican council often refers to them as men and women of good faith or men and women of goodwill, I think is the term, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that a certain kind of humanism is really quite possible for the unbeliever and should be encouraged on its own terms should be encouraged. Um, so there, I think that's an important, uh, it's an important insight, an important, po- important point. And then underneath that, and this has become to the fore in both John Paul, II's papacy and in the papacy of, uh, of Benedict, Pope Benedict, and that is that the Christian confidence, and we get this in St. Thomas, that revelation and faith and the infused virtue of uh, the grace of faith is an encouragement and an inducement to intellectual work, is a testimony to the way in which Christianity is committed to the vitality of the life of the mind and its service of a real truth. And so both uh, John Paul II and Benedict have really tried to intervene in kind of contemporary Western uh, intellectual culture, worried that it's too pessimistic about the possibility of truth and the possibility of the mind. And here it's completely independent about whether a person has faith, but whether we as, as cre- creatures uh, created in the image of God possess the capacity to distinguish between good arguments and bad arguments, to distinguish between evidence that is strong and evidence that is weak. there's a kind of pessimism. It's all ideology, it's all power, it's all assumptions. It's all you know race, class, and gender, whatever it might be. There's that kind of pets a kind of a pessimism
0: when we look back, historians look back to the twentieth century and you look at the pillage that occurred to the human race. Just the wars and the devastations that we inflicted upon ourselves. What will they truly call the Dark Age?
1: And there's no doubt that that's at the that's at the root of this kind of intellectual pessimism. I mean, there's a lot of kind of negative. You know, people will denounce you know nihilism and relativism and all that kind of stuff, and, and rightly. But I think as believers, we need to see see exactly that, and recognize that a lot of this pessimism. Is growing out of a very realistic assessment of, of what the 20th century really is all about. You know, a lot of, there are awful lot of very influential figures in so-called postmodern thought, who you know were young men, you know, at the universities in the 50s, 40s and 50s, in the aftermath of uh, Hiroshima, death camps, uh, destruction of Europe. Uh, um, People being torn apart by ideology—it's really, a ruthless time. World War One to depression, totalitarianisms, fascism, to, uh, Stalin purges, gulags—awful, awful, awful. There didn't seem to be any answers mm-hmm. to them, and and so they. My interpretation of it is that there was a sense that to reduce the pride of man, they have undercut the power of reason. And that's, that's not noble because it's not true that we have no power of reason to attain truth. Uh, but it's a kind of, I look at it and think, that's not an immoral impulse. Uh, but like so much of what the human person can do without the aid of revelation, uh, the good things always go bad. Uh, they always go bad. And so the half impulse, the half truth becomes um, uh, perverse in its partiality. And the, the, the humility of the intellect, which is appropriate, becomes a pessimism, pessimism of the intellect. Um, and an appropriate kind of uh, uh, openness to uh, other cultures becomes a kind of hatred of one's own culture. Um, and so you can see how these half-truths and corrective half-truths then take on a life of their own because there's no balance. There's no, uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton said that all the vices of modernity are virtues gone mad. Uh, So uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that and and accuracy in that. And I think it's important for, for listeners who really feel strongly that we live in a very hostile culture and in many ways we do to, to, I really want to encourage them to think charitably about what what the source of those uh, ideas very, very few people are wicked and want to be wicked. Mm-hmm. Most people, they pursue, they create a culture of death, in, in as John Paul II called it, uh, on the basis of good intentions. You know, they want to pe- put people out of their misery. They want to prevent the the un- unwanted children. I mean, we know all of the sentiments. And I think that's, that's also true in these kinds of philosophies and uh political visions that lie behind them, it's important for us to kind of pick those apart because otherwise we can't speak to them Mm -hmm. accurately. Then it's just, boom, banging against them. We talked about that, that what uh, apologetics is a kind of witnessing of life and action. And it's also part of it is, as I said, St. Thomas said, when you agree on premises, you can show people the true implications. So part of it is kind of digging down and discerning what is it in the secular Western humanism? Where, Where is it really finding its energy and its and its truth from the Christian tradition. Find that, try to identify that, and then you can persuade people that, that the Christian way of life really is a far, far deeper and more trustworthy fulfillment of those deepest impulses.
0: Wonderful words of advice. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Professor Reno. Until next time. You've been listening to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. R. Reno. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, We hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno.